Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God. His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Thank you to the generous underwriters of Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. And Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Tuesday, October 3rd, we are studying Hebrews chapter 1, verses 5 to 14. In today's text, the author of Hebrews quotes extensively from the Old Testament in order to show that Jesus is the Son of God, who has inherited the name that is superior to the angels. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have this returning guest, the Reverend Dr. Brian Ketchelmeyer. Pastor Ketchelmeyer serves as a teacher at Wittenberg Academy. Pastor Ketchelmeyer, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Oh, it is great to be here. So we get to talk about Hebrews today, a bunch of Old Testament quotations in the book of Hebrews today. What should we know about Hebrews as we prepare to look at this part of chapter 1? Well, I think what's fascinating here is that uh, Dr. Kleinick sees the, the whole epistle of the Hebrews, or to the Hebrews, I should say, as a sermon. Uh, and so really, this is a sermon that is to be uh, used in the divine service in which you hear the living voice of God. And that sermon, of course, is going to be on Christ as the high priest. Uh, that, that's the whole significance here, is that he is of the order of Melchizedek. He's the true high priest that's far greater than Aaron or any of his sons. But as the true high priest, he's the one who gives us access to the throne of grace uh, in the heavenly sanctuary. So he's the one who is both the victim, the sacrifice, if you will, and the priest himself who offers him his own body and blood for the forgiveness of sins, gaining to us that access to the Father and his throne of grace uh, in the Holy Spirit, that we can be certain and sure of our salvation, forgiveness, and eternal life so that we are adopted sons into the family of God. And here on earth, we continue to set our eyes upon Jesus, who is the founder and the finisher of our faith. And so the whole focus of the, the letter to the Hebrews is the person and work of Christ, which, of course, is the message of salvation. That is the message the Holy Spirit gives to us throughout all of Scripture to set our eyes upon Jesus, our Savior, who saves us from our sin. So today's text, again, the second one in the, in the sermon, as Dr. Kleinig makes the case, and I think rightly so, is a, a bunch of Old Testament quotations, and we'll look at them one at a time. Is there any overarching things that we need to, to see about the way that these Old Testament quotations come or are arranged as we prepare to look at this section? Well, I think that the significance here for these uh, texts that are linked together intentionally in this ordering, uh, that we would understand that uh, the Son of God, that that's going to be the name that's given to him, he is the Son, he is God, and he is Yahweh, uh, Lord, uh, Kyrios, he is the one who is given that divine name. So we're going to look at this as he gives the name of Son, God, and Lord, which makes him distinct then all from all of the created angels. I mean, when we look at the Old Testament, 
We see sometimes, in particular, where the Son of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity, is the one who appears. He's the one who makes God known, like, for instance, in the burning bush with Moses. He is the messenger of Yahweh, the messenger of of God. He's the one who brings the presence of God to people. He's the spokesman of the Holy Trinity. But we always want to make a distinction between the Son of God, the eternal word, the messenger, and other messengers, because that's what the word angel means itself, is a messenger who brings the message from heaven. But Jesus is more than just a created messenger. He is the message itself, the eternal word of God. So we want to make a clear distinction between Jesus as the true messenger of God in distinction to all of the created messengers or angels of God. So this is where we're going to see this this contrast between the angels who are ministers of God, liturgists, as uh, Dr. Kleinick would say, liturgists in that divine service in the heavenly realm. And we want to make this clear with a whole set of of questions, rhetorical questions, uh, questions to cause us pause, to meditate, contemplate the Word of God. And when we hear the Word of God, we are hearing the voice of God in the present. And so what we see here in particular when we look at these passages is not just a list of quote-unquote proof texts trying to prove a point, but rather this is the voice of God spoken to the people of God in the divine service here on earth. So when we are gathered together with the whole company of heaven, with angels and archangels, and we gather at the Lord's table, at the altar of his presence, his promised presence, we are gathered with the church uh, militant on earth, but also the church triumphant and all the the heavenly host. And this is where we want to see what is happening in this whole divine dialogue, where God engages us into this conversation where the Father speaks to the Son, the Father speaks about the Son, and throughout the book of Hebrews, the Son himself speaks, and even the Holy Spirit speaks, so that all three persons of the blessed Holy Trinity are in conversation with creation, uh, giving to us this whole message of salvation and redemption, that we hear who the Redeemer is. The one who has created all things is going to be the one who will redeem all things. So the builder is the rebuilder of everything that has fallen apart because of sin. Mm, I, I really appreciate the way that you said that this isn't just a string of proof texts, but this is actually the voice of the living God. As we hear especially the Father speak to the Son, we hear that voice of God that is spoken now to us here and now in the church together. And that's that's a huge thing that Dr. Kleining mentioned yesterday when we talked about the epistle as a whole, that this is the voice of God speaking to his people still through his Son. And now as we get to overhear the conversation between the Father and the Son, that we get to hear that same voice of God speaking to us. This is, this is a huge thing. So those are, are fantastic backgrounds for the text we've got today. This is Hebrews chapter 1, beginning at verse 5. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, He makes his angels winds, and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. 
And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits, sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? That's the text for today. That is Hebrews chapter 1, verses 5 to 14. So, Pastor Ketchermeyer, as you said, we open with, and we'll see at the end, we close with rhetorical questions. The first one in verse 5, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today today I have begotten you? What is the scripture passage that the author is inviting us to consider and contemplate with this rhetorical question? Well, this is Psalm 2. Uh, And so when we look at Psalm 2, we are looking at the the anointed son of David, the promised one who is the Christ. To be anointed is to be christened, is to be the Mashiach, is the anointed one from Hebrew, or Christos, uh, anointed one from the Greek. And so that's where we get Christ, of course, or Messiah, Mashiach from the Hebrew. But this is where we're going to look at the son. And what, what I think is fascinating here, again, is this understanding of this conversation that is begun with a question. And so it, it's not just a listing of proof texts, like we said. So it's not just, here's a verse from, some, from Psalm 2, and it proves what I'm trying to tell you. Instead, it's, it's this invitation to engage in a conversation where you sit and you listen to the Word of God. Because in fact, this is exactly what happened in the very beginning when the devil was trying to undo what God had done, what God had made. It's a devil who slithers in with a question and asking Eve, did God really say that? And so it's God who comes to Eve and Adam seeking to save the lost, and he's asking them, where are you? So that he's inviting them into a conversation with him separating them from sin and Satan. And so you listen to the Lord, listen to his word. And so here, we're making that contrast with angels. Now, of course, the devil himself is a fallen angel, a a false messenger, one who brings a false doctrine, the doctrine of demons, always trying to take us away from the word of God. But the holy angels are those who have the message. They are the ones who are to minister to the people of God, the believers, giving to us this message of good news that is found only in the Son. But you want to make a clear distinction between created angels and the one who is eternal, the eternal Son. So to which of the angels, to which of these messengers did God ever say, you are my Son, today I have begotten you? Now, this understanding of today is this eternal today, so that whenever you hear this, it's always today. For God is eternal. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. There is no time with God, for God is the eternal one. And so it's always today for him. So this word spoken by the Father to the Son, declaring him, You are my Son, today I have begotten you. I mean, this is the confession that we have in the church when we gather as the people of God in the divine liturgy, in which we say that the Son is begotten, not made. He is true God of true God, that he is true light of true light, that this is the one who is of the same divine essence as the Father, the same divine substance of the Father. And so he is truly God. 
But here in particular, he is the son. Now, of course, you, you do have places in the Old Testament where angels can be referred to as sons of God, uh, and even believers can be referred to as sons of God. But now we are adopted sons of God by grace, but we are not begotten of the same essence or divine a being of God. But the second person of the Holy Trinity is. So when you look at Psalm 2, understand this whole connection of a coronation in which a son of David now takes the throne. So this is why uh, Dr. Kleinick will kind of open up and show that this is a this is a sermon on the ascension. So it's in the ascension that Jesus is enthroned in glory in the heavenly courtroom. And so the angels are these ministers in that heavenly courtroom where now they see the Son and these words are given to them as they are given to the Son and as they are given to us. So we begin with this whole understanding of a coronation, that he is king of kings, uh, that he is the one who is going to extend his eternal kingdom. So he is eternal, his throne is eternal, his kingdom is eternal. So when you look at uh, Psalm 2, this is that contrast in the Old Testament where the kings of the earth are always in animosity with the king of kings. So that the kingdoms of the earth are always trying to prevent God's kingdom from coming. Well, God's kingdom comes through the proclamation of his word when that word is heard about the person and work of the promised Messiah. That's the promised presence of God who works salvation and redemption for fallen creation. And so you're always going to have in the Old Testament this war of words between the devil on one hand and the kings of this earth who are in league together to try to stop the ears of the people of God from hearing what God has to say. I mean, this is the devil who blinds the unbelievers so that they cannot uh, see the reality of the message of salvation. So in Psalm 2, you have the kings of the earth set themselves up. The rulers are taking counsel together, and they're going against Yahweh and his Christ. And so you have that picture there, that this is what the kings of the earth are doing. However, when they make these plans in private, they will never come to fruition. So you have kind of this, this conversation behind the scenes of what they're saying when they are plotting and planning against Yahweh and his Christ. They say, let us burst the bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. But this psalm gives us the assurance that Yahweh hears this and he who sits in heaven laughs. <laughs> he holds them in derision. And then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So this is the Father speaking about the Son, the one who is incarnate, who takes upon flesh and blood to tabernacle amongst us, the one who is born of Mary, who is the son of David. He's the king, the king that we're waiting for. He's the true David. He is the one that we've been promised ever since the beginning to Adam and Eve that the seed is going to crush the serpent's head. So he is going to make this decree. And so now in that conversation, so even back in, in Psalm 2, you have this conversation going on where you have the Father speaking, as for me, I set my king on the holy hill. And then you have the Son saying that he said to me. So you're hearing the conversation uh, with the Son and the Father. So the Father speaks to the Son, and the Son says, you are my Son, today I've begotten you. This is what he said to me. So he's quoting what the Father has said to him. And then, of course, the Father says to the Son, ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. 
that this is the understanding of uh, the crucifixion, where Jesus was crucified for our sins, to take away that condemnation of the law that is against us, because we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then he was raised for our righteousness, and now he ascends into heaven. So here you open up with this picture of the one who ascends into heaven is the king, and then the kingdoms of the earth are going to fall when the gospel is sent out from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth, and the apostles, the sent ones, proclaim Christ crucified to the nations, and then the Gentiles are converted to faith. So in the Old Testament, when the kingdoms of the earth are trying to prevent God's kingdom from coming, this will all be undone when Jesus dies, rises, and ascends into heaven, and he now sits on the throne, and he continues to reign as king, the king of kings, and he sends out his his kingdom to the ends of the earth with a proclamation of his word. So you see all of this packed into this one question where you're talking about the son in Psalm 2, which then, of course, will take us to 2 Samuel chapter 7. Yeah, so that, that's fantastic, Patrick, Pastor Ketchelmeyer, because again, you, you noted there's a quotation from Psalm 2, but you brought in the full context of that psalm, which is often the way to go when the New Testament quotes from the Old— we shouldn't only think of that particular verse, but also their surrounding context. So all of Psalm 2 informs what the author of this sermon wants us to be listening to with the voice of God. Again, not just a proof text, but to listen to this conversation, to hear the voice of God speaking. This is, this is the point. He wants us to be involved in this conversation. So Psalm 2, and then and the, that question continues, really, or again, and now he quotes from Second Samuel, I think you said, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. We definitely need some more context when it comes to this quotation from Second Samuel. So again, in Second Samuel, understand that uh, David has now ascended to the throne. Remember that originally uh, Samuel is the judge and the prophet, and the people of Israel say, hey, we want a king just like the Gentiles. <laughs> so we want to be just like the Gentiles. The problem if you're just like the Gentiles is you don't have the promise of the Messiah. I mean, so this is what makes all the Gentile nations different and distinct, is when they have a temple and they have sacrifices, they do not have the promise of the incarnation. They don't have the promise that God himself will take upon flesh and blood and die for humanity to make us right with God that uh, they don't have that promise, the promised presence of God in their temples. Instead, they follow the doctrines of demons. So when the people come to Samuel and say, hey, we want a king just like the, the nations, what it also is included in that is the worship of the nations without God's word, which of course is idolatry. But remember what Samuel does is he goes to Yahweh, has the conversation, and Yahweh says that they have not rejected you, Samuel, but instead they have rejected me as king of kings, their true king. So now they want a king like the nations without my word, let them have it. And so uh, the Lord gives them Saul. But again, we know what happens with Saul, that doesn't go well. And David then becomes the, the new king, the, the true king, that God is, is placed upon the throne, that he's the, the king the, who is after God's own heart. And so it's David, when he kind of, he takes over, he ascends to the throne, and he's ready now to get to business. And what he wants to do is he wants to build a temple. And so it's in 2 Samuel chapter 7, where David calls the prophet Nathan to him and says, hey, I'm, uh, 
what I'm doing right now is I, I'm thinking I ought to build a temple. And of course, uh, Nathan the prophet says, hey, that's a great idea. I love it. Have at it. Bless you on this. God will be with you. Well, of course, then God comes to, uh, to uh, the prophet Nathan and says, not so. That's not what's going to happen. This is not according to my will. Instead, I'm going to build David a house. So instead of David building God a house, a temple, uh, a place for his promised presence, uh, the Lord turns us all around and says, I will build him a house that is a dynasty, that he will have a kingdom, an eternal kingdom, and the son of David himself will be the one who will reign on the throne. And so the picture then is given to us that David himself will not build a temple, but his son will build the temple, and we see this in Solomon. So that picture is that the son of David, Solomon, who when he ascends to the throne, he builds a temple. Now, now, throughout the whole Old Testament, you have this understanding of the temple in Jerusalem, the place where God's name is placed so that they have the promise of God's presence. But what happens inevitably is that the temple in Jerusalem becomes like the temples of the world, and that temple is toppled because they start engaging in the worship of the world without God's word. They engage in the idolatry. And so that temple is destroyed. Now, understand that when Jesus comes, Jesus in this whole picture and imagery of a temple or even a tabernacle before, it was always pointing to his incarnation, that he would take upon flesh and blood to tabernacle amongst us. And so Jesus would even talk uh, in, in John's gospel about you destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Well, of course, they immediately assume it's the temple that they rebuilt, the temple during the days of Herod. But instead, Jesus is talking about his own body. So that destruction of the temple itself and the rebuilding of the temple points to the death and crucifixion of Christ and the resurrection of Christ in the ascension, where he is building his temple. He is that rock that was rejected by the builders. And now we are spiritual rocks being built up into this habitation of God, the, the, the temple of God. So all of this is, is packed into that 2 Samuel chapter 7, where Nathan is coming to uh, David, and uh, he gives to David these words and says, uh, I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, Yahweh declares to you that Yahweh will make you a house. That's him building a house for David, his own dynasty. And when your days are fulfilled, you will lie down with your fathers, and I will raise up your offspring after you. That's that seed. You go back to the promise of the seed that's going to crush the serpent's head to Eve, and then you have that promise that you're waiting for from Abraham to Isaac and to Jacob. And even when you see the picture of baby Moses, you're saying maybe this is the, the boy of joy that's the one who's going to be born to bring the deliverance and salvation, but Moses becomes a picture of bringing that deliverance and redemption out of Egypt. And so you're looking for that seed. He's the one that's going to come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So that's the picture of one greater than Solomon that we're waiting for, one who is greater than the temple. And of course, that is Jesus himself. And so this is where in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14, that passage that says, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. And so you see Jesus who knew no sin, comes here to earth. 
and then he takes upon the sins of humanity. The one who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. And so he is struck with our iniquity. It is counted as if it were his own, and then he gives us his own righteousness as a gift. So this is crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ, and then the ascension. So now he reigns as king, and now he brings in that eternal kingdom. So this is all set up to understand that the one who is the son is the promised seed who would have an eternal kingdom here on earth. Mm. All right. So again, a quotation from 2 Samuel chapter 7, and that full context that the Lord is giving to David the eternal kingdom, and this is fulfilled in Jesus, who is the Son of God. And again, listening to this conversation between father and son, the father says, I will be to him a father, he shall be to me a son. This is something that he has spoken only to the Son of God, not to the angels. This is spoken uniquely to Jesus. He is receiving this name more excellent than the angels. We've only got a couple minutes here before the break, Pastor Ketchermeyer. In fact, I think it's probably best if we just go ahead and take our break a hair early today so that we don't have to interrupt our conversation concerning the next Old Testament quotation. You're listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. We're talking to Pastor Ketchelmeyer this morning about Hebrews 1. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that an investment with Lutheran Church Extension Fund exclusively supports LCMS ministries and church workers? That's right. LCEF ensures LCMS churches, schools, and organizations have access to the financial resources they need to sustain, strengthen, and start ministry work. In other words, you can feel good investing with LCEF because we share your Lutheran values and love for the church. Learn more at lcef.org. LCF is a nonprofit religious organization. Therefore, LCF investments are not FDIC insured bank deposit accounts. This is not an offer to sell investments or solicitation to buy. LCF will offer and sell its securities only in states where authorized. The offer is made solely by LCF's offering circular. Investors should carefully read the offering circular, which more fully describes associated risks. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Tuesday, October 3rd. We're studying Hebrews chapter 1, verses 5 to 14, with the Reverend Dr. Brian Ketchelmeyer. He is teacher at Wittenberg Academy. Pastor Ketchelmeyer, we've gone through the first two Old Testament quotations that the author writes so that we would consider the voice of God speaking to us. In verse 6 of Hebrews chapter 1, we get the next, and he gives us a little bit of context himself. Again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says... Let all God's angels worship him. So with this one, we probably need to understand when is the the bringing of the firstborn into the world, uh, and then where is this Old Testament citation coming from? Yeah, and so Dr. Kleiner will talk about this, uh, the idea of bringing into the world. And so we, we, are, we are having this focus between the world and the world to come. And when we gather in the divine service, that reality that we have here in time is uniting us together, but we won't fully see all of this until 
it's manifest on the last day in the resurrection of the body. So that's the here, but not yet. It's what we have promised in Christ. And the, the firstborn, prototokos, is the, the one who is the source. Uh, and what you have here is that right now, he is the source of all things. He's the source of all creation. He's the firstborn of creation. He's the firstborn of the dead. And he's the firstborn of all the kings. He's the king's uh, a king. He's the king of kings, I should say. And so he's the source of all these kingdoms. He's the source of all of this uh, majesty and, and royal rule. And this connection here is that in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 32, that's the song of Moses. So chapter 32 is kind of giving a song of Moses to the people of God when they go into the promised land. And basically Moses saying, hey, Joshua is going to uh, take over. I'm going to die and go on to glory, but he's going to take over. But here's the problem. You didn't listen to me when I was alive, and you're not going to listen to me in my written word. Uh, and so what's going to happen is you're going to reject the rock of your salvation, and you're going to follow after the rocks of this earth. Uh, you're going to follow after the deities of this earth. You're going to cling to fallen creation instead of the creator. However, it's in this, this same chapter 32 in the song where you have Yahweh say, see now that I, even I am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. So this is that declaration of death and life, the, dec the declaration of the crucifixion and the resurrection, the one who comes to die for our sin rises again so that we would be healed by his wounds. And no one can snatch it out of his hand. In fact, this is even what Jesus will quote from in John chapter 10 when he talks about the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep, and then he takes it up again. I kill, I make alive, I wound and I heal, and no one can snatch out of my hand. Hand, Jesus says, is no one can snatch out of the Father's hand. So that's that whole connection here that you're waiting for the one who will overcome a death in the grave and will defeat the devil himself. And so it's in that passage where you have a rejoicing, O heavens. So this is verse 43 in Deuteronomy chapter 32, where there's an invitation to the heavens. Rejoice with me. In fact, the whole of this song of Moses is this understanding that the heavens would give ear and that the earth would, would hear. And now it's this invitation of the heavens to rejoice because now we have the one who overcomes death in the grave. And it's the one who is going to avenge his children, avenges the blood of his sons, who takes vengeance on his adversaries, who repays those who hate him and cleanses his people's land. I mean, that's going to be now we're going to move into the direction of the, the priestly work of Jesus to cleanse from sin. But what's very unique here is this conversation that you have in in Hebrews chapter 1, that you're, you're hearing the voice of God now. So it's not just a proof text. Look, here's one verse where I can prove what I'm trying to say. But look, this was a divine dialogue. So that that divine dialogue with the, the song of Moses in, in Deuteronomy 32, that continued into the liturgical life of the church. And so when the quotation is made in Hebrews chapter uh, 1, it's actually coming from the Greek version of, of this text. And in that Greek version, you have the addition of the, the angels, the, the ones who are part of heaven that is invited to join in uh, with the nations. I mean, so this is really what's going on is that, that the 
nations would rejoice because the nations, you have the conversion of the Gentiles, and then the creation itself will rejoice. And so this gets a little convoluted when you look in our English translations because they do a little bit of mixing of the Hebrew and the Greek to kind of give us what we have here. <laughs> but, but in particular, what the author of the letter to the Hebrews is doing is he's, he's quoting from the Greek to understand this idea that the angelic beings, okay, so that's the whole idea of, of inviting the heavens to rejoice. In the song of Moses, he's technically inviting the Gentiles to rejoice. So that's what's taking place again in the crucifixion, resurrection, ascension of Jesus, that this message of salvation goes to the ends of the earth, that all nations would be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So there's something very unique here with this understanding of God speaking now, that you're hearing this living voice now about the Son, and you're hearing this voice spoken to the Son, so that you have that living voice in the divine service. Now, as that living voice of God continues, as we go to more passages from the Old Testament, in verse 7, then, we hear now, of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. So, so far we've heard the voice of God speaking to the Son, and we've heard, again, the voice of the living God speaking about God's angels worshiping the Son. Now we hear God's voice speaking a little more directly about who the angels are and their role, and what again, that's going to show the distinction from the Son. So take us into the quotation there in verse 7. Well, again, you have this, this contrast between the only begotten Son of God. So e even in that Septuagint passage in Deuteronomy 32, you actually refer to the angels as sons in the plural, of God. But in the text itself, it's going to use this understanding that those are angels, <laughs> that right. those are messengers of God. So you have a distinction between one who is the only begotten, who is the Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, and the angels who are created. And of course, us as human beings, we are adopted as sons of God. And so now all of a sudden, he's using this language of he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire, understanding that what the angels angels are doing, it is in this liturgical life of this heavenly sanctuary. So think of these pictures of the heavenly courtroom, the coronation of the king, this understanding of this is also the heavenly sanctuary where the liturgy is, is going on for the benefit of the people of God. And when you go to Psalm 104, the psalm itself is going to be spoken to Yahweh. So it opens up by saying, Bless Yahweh, O my soul. O Yahweh, you're my God. You are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. Now, so we have this understanding that you have the Creator who is stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of the chambers on the water. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. And so you have the Creator over creation, that he's the one who's stretching out the heavens. He's, he's the one who is putting everything together, and he's the one who rides in the clouds. I mean, this is a picture in the Old Testament of the presence of God, uh, like the cloud by day as the Israelites are taken out of Egypt, pillar of fire by night, or the cloud on uh, Mount Sinai, that this is kind of, it, it's, it's where God is present with his people, 
And then in particular, he makes his messengers winds and his ministers a flaming fire. So understand that in Psalm 104, like all the Psalms, that these are going to be chanted at the temple. This is at the place of God's promised presence where the creator himself is entering into creation actively. The living God is actively involved in the lives of his people, not just only sustaining them with food, but also sustaining their souls with this message of salvation. So that's that whole, that liturgy in the heavenly sanctuary is what's also taking place in the liturgy of the temple in the days of the Old Testament. But that temple is always waiting a greater fulfillment in the temple to come. So again, that picture that the temple in Jerusalem had to be destroyed and it had to be rebuilt. And so that you would understand that Jesus, who is this temple, he's the promised place, the location of God's presence in the incarnation, in the flesh. He had to be put to death and he had to be raised. You have a building and you have a rebuilding. And so that's that whole idea of his body itself. And when he ascends into heaven, he's connecting heaven and earth together in this liturgical service that what are the angels doing? Well, they're, they're ministers. And so this idea of winds and flames of fire, this has to do with the movement of the angels. Uh, they're part of creation but they are not the creator himself. As the author of this sermon continues to invite us to hear the voice of the living God, in verses 8 and 9, we have a longer citation from the Old Testament. I'll read it again. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And again, this is something that the Father says of the Son. What are we learning from God's voice in this Old Testament passage? Well, so when you, you gather at the temple in the Old Testament times, you are gathering in the presence of God where you are participating in a divine dialogue. I mean, this goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, where Moses gives us those words of that eternal decree, uh, where we have a behind-the-scenes kind of look and a hearing, where you have God saying, let us make man in our own image and likeness. So you have this divine dialogue between the three persons of the Blessed Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in the plural, let us make man in our own image and likeness. And at the temple itself, this is where you're going to have this continued conversation in the present, where the Holy Trinity is present, having this conversation about redemption. I mean, these are the two eternal decrees. Number one, that God would make man in his own image and likeness. And number two, that God would restore man in his image and likeness because of the fall and the sin. Well, that's what the temple does. So it's at the temple where God has promised to be present there for the benefit of his people, that he is the one who is giving them the assurance of salvation, the assurance of his holiness as a gift that he alone sanctifies. So you have this kind Kind of this conversation that's going on in Psalm 45. It, it, it's not the way that the author of the Hebrews, and ultimately, of course, the Holy Spirit is the one who inspires and in speaking here through every written text. It's not merely if you put, took Psalm 45 out of the context. See, that that's the problem with a proof text, is you have to kind of cut it out of the context itself. So if you just took Psalm 45 out of the context of this entire message of salvation, you would assume that in Psalm 45, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. This would be 
potentially the high priest who's speaking this, uh, possibly the king who's speaking this, who's speaking this to God. So you would have the one on earth speaking to God saying, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. I mean, if you compare it with the, uh, the king, let's say the king has an earthly throne, but then in contrast, the king is looking to God and saying, my throne is here on earth, but your throne is forever. I mean, that's kind of how you would assume this if you ripped it out of context. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of up uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God is your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Now, all of a sudden, you're looking at this now, and you're, you're saying, well, wait a minute. God, your God, has anointed you. Mm. <laughs> and and now, now, now you're starting to look at this in context and go, wait a minute. This is actually the Father speaking to the Son. So in Hebrews chapter 1, this is made, being made clear to us. This is the Father speaking to the Son. The Father is saying to the Son, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. <laughs> That's not... <laughs> and so now all of a sudden, therefore, God, your God has anointed you, okay, and made you the Christ. Now you go back to Psalm 2. Today you have begotten me. This is what the Father says to the Son. And, and so the, the Father is the one who places his anointed one, his Christ his Christ upon the throne with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And of course, that's always pointing toward the, the Holy Spirit. Uh, that according to his human nature, uh, of course, in the baptism of Jesus in the Jordan, the Holy Spirit descends in the form of a dove, that we understand that this, this oil and pouring out of gladness, of joy, is this picture and image of the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus is the one who is the source of the Holy Spirit, who then gives the Holy Spirit without measure. But this passage is that conversation, and it's clarifying for us, so that here, this is a contrast between these created angels, these, uh, these messengers who are to give the message of, of heaven, but they're different than the Son, because to which one of these angels did he ever say, your throne? Well, none of them had a throne. <laughs> it's always the other way around. But instead, to which of the angels did he ever say this? Well, instead, he said this to his Son, you, O God. So now he's giving not only the, the title of Son to him, in distinction to the created angels, messengers, but he's also giving the title God to him. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. So you have the Son who is eternally begotten. He was there before the foundation of the earth. He is the creator with the Holy Spirit and the Father. And he is eternal, and his throne is eternal. His kingdom is eternal. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He is the source of life. He's the builder and the rebuilder. So this is that contrast with the angels. They don't have that divine title or name God because they are not eternal like him. So in the beginning in chapter one of Genesis, when God says, let us make man in our, our own image and life, likeness, he's not including the angels. So he's not saying to the angels, hey, let us, you and me and all you angels out there, we're all going to make a man. Instead, this is the Holy Trinity in that divine dialogue eternally saying, let us make man in our own image. Because the angels are created, so they weren't part of that conversation. They did not exist when that conversation existed. And so now you have this distinction that God speaks specifically to Jesus. The Father speaks 
to the Son and declares them, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Mm. So again, we're seeing here, to go back to the, the last text, this is the name that the Son has inherited that is even greater, more superior than the angels. As we listen to this conversation between Father and Son, the living voice of God for us still today. Got two more Old Testament citations to go through. The next is a little bit longer, but again, we hear that name being given. Here, it's not the name God, but here's the name Lord Yahweh. Takes into the next Old Testament quotation, starting there in verse 10. So uh, again, you have this, you're the Son, you're God, and you are Yahweh. I mean, this is a divine name. Uh, in, in, of course, from the, the Greek, we get kurios. Uh, we have uh, in the Hebrew, the, the practice of the rabbis is to say Adonai uh, when you see the tetragrammaton. But in the, the text of Psalm 102, this is where the Father is now speaking to the Son. And so again, I mean, if you ripped it out of context, and you were using this as a proof text, I mean, you, 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 would, you would assume that this is maybe the high priest, uh, this is the king, this is David, this is someone who's, who's speaking to Yahweh, saying, Yahweh of old, you laid the foundations of the earth. But instead, this is now clear, clear to us, the clarity has been given with the Holy Spirit, this is the Father speaking to the Son, you... <laughs> Oh, Lord, okay, you, Yahweh, you have laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. So this is the Father declaring to the Son that he was there eternally at the beginning with that eternal decree, let us make man in our own image and likeness. So that in the beginning was God, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters, and when God said, let us make man, let us make light, let there be light, when God speaks, this is the Father sending forth the Son. So when God speaks the Word of God, the Word does what he does. He is life. He gives life. And so he is the creator. You laid the foundation of the earth. The heavens are the work of your hands. And then you have that contrast that the earth itself is temporary because of the fall into sin. All of this creation is falling apart. But in contrast, they're going to perish, but you're going to remain. They will all wear out like a garment and you will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. And so you have the temporariness of the current heavens and the earth, that they will come to an end. But we are waiting in anticipation of the new heavens and the new earth, and this is what the Messiah comes to do. This is what the anointed Son of God uh, comes to do. This is what he does as the high priest, where he is uniting heaven and earth together. He's bringing reconciliation between sinners and the creator itself. And so you are the same and your years have no end. So this is different and distinct with the angels. The angels do not have that divine name. They are not spoken to by the Father and being called Yahweh. They are not the creators. They are part of creation. And so with creation, we wait in anticipation for the Son, the one who is God, the one who is Yahweh in the flesh who comes to save us, the one who will restore all creation. Now, as he draws his last Old Testament quotation, where we get to, again, hear the voice of God, and we have that language, a rhetorical question to wrap this up, and to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? We have a quotation here from Psalm 110, which Dr. Kleinig suggests is one of the primary sermon texts for the author. So 
Help us into verse 13 here. Yeah, so again, you tie all this together so that when you would read uh, Psalm 110, uh, when you would read this at the temple, when you would read this in the Old Testament times, you are waiting in anticipation for the Christ. I mean, this is going to be the most quoted psalm in all of the, the New Testament. Uh, this is the one that is testifying to who the Son is in the Ascension. He's the, the true Son of David. And, and so when you look at it at the actual context, verse 1, this is where Yahweh says to my Lord, so now you have David writing this psalm, and David is saying that Yahweh says to my Lord. Now, David is king. <laughs> he's, he's God's king. He's the anointed one. But yet, David is saying he has one who is higher than him, and he's making a distinction between that one and another one. So Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And so that's that picture here, is that you have the Father speaking to the Son, and David has uh, this privy to this divine dialogue, the behind-the-scenes look, and he's giving this to us by the Holy Spirit so that we would have part of this whole kind of secret, uh, the, this conversation that was going on that we didn't even know until the Holy Spirit reveals it to us. So Yahweh said to my Lord, the Father speaks to, to, to the Son, saying, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, in, in the ancient world, of course, the idea of a footstool is when a king sits on his throne and he puts his feet upon the footstool. Uh, in the ancient world, you would have enemies uh, engraved or uh, depicted in the footstool. So when you are sitting on your throne, you are reigning and you're ruling. When you put your feet upon the, the footstool, you're putting your feet on your enemies. They are in subjection to you. They are in submission to you. I mean, this is one of the big contrasts between the Old Testament and the New Testament. You have, like, for instance, in the, the book of Job, Remember, Job opens up with this divine heavenly courtroom where Satan enters in and has a conversation with Yahweh. And Yahweh says, uh, well, have you tried Job? Because Satan, Satan, means accuse. He's accuser. And so this is what his job is, is he goes out and he accuses. He accuses humanity of sin. And so try Job. So Satan goes and he tries Job. Well, in the Old Testament times, you have this access to the divine courtroom, to divine divine throne. But now in the New Testament, when Jesus comes, he throws the devil out. I mean, you have this whole picture in Revelation chapter 12, which the book of Revelation itself is also a sermon on the ascension, uh, what it means in the liturgical life of the church. So there's a lot of parallels between the epistle to the Hebrews and the Revelation itself, that uh, you have the Son now sitting on the throne. And so no longer can Satan accuse us before the throne. He is, his, his foot, the king's foot is upon him. He's in submission, subjection. I mean, he's out of a job. Uh, in uh, chapter 12 of Revelation, it's like the bailiff, uh, Michael, the archangel, has to kick him out of the courtroom and say, get out of here. And so he no longer has the ability to accuse the saints before uh, God in the throne room. And so this is the whole advantage of your opening this up, where now this is where we see as the people of God, the ascended Christ, who is now reigning and ruling as the King of Kings. He is the true high priest who gives us access to the heavenly courtroom, to the heavenly sanctuary, where we have access to the Father. Uh, so like in the, the epistle to the Romans, that being justified by faith, we now have peace with God. Peace and 
our conscience now because we can draw near to this throne of grace all because of the person of Christ. So it's, it's in uh, the Holy Spirit through the person of Christ that we have access to the Father. Now, as this section of the sermon wraps up, then we get one more question from the writer of this sermon, and he asks a question that he intends you to agree with. He's expecting an affirmative answer. Are they, that is the angels now, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? So we've spent a lot of time hearing the voice of the living God informing us who the Son is and giving us that name that he's been given so that we would know that it's superior to the angels. Here we find out who those angels are and a little bit more about them. I've got about three minutes here, Pastor Kachelmeyer. Take us into this last verse of the text. Well, again, when we, we talk about being baptized into the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, we're talking about being adopted as sons of grace. So now as sons of the kingdom, sons in the family, we are heirs of the kingdom. And so we have this inheritance, the salvation that Christ himself gives to us. So when Jesus ascends into heaven, he pours out the Holy Spirit upon us. Uh, we are absolved of our sins because of the personal work of Christ. We are adopted as uh, sons, and so we have this assurance of this eternal salvation, that now we, we have the gift of eternal life. We have that gift because of Jesus. And so the, the ministering spirits, the angels who are liturgist in the heavenly room uh, of God, in that temple, the sanctuary in heaven, they are ministering. They're in the liturgy. So that's why when we gather in the, the weekly liturgy of the church here on earth, the ancient Catholic uh, liturgy that we have in the divine service, we say when we gather around the table, therefore with angels and archangels and with all the company of heaven, we laud and magnify your glorious name, evermore praising you. Uh, and so we're, we're gathering together okay, with these ministering spirits who, again, are focusing on the personal work of Christ because they are messengers. And this is in contradistinction to the doctrines of demons, that's the fallen angels, that are always trying to take us away from God's Word. So the wisdom of the ancient church was you, you gather together in the liturgical life of the church with these passages from the Bible, these canticles, the Holy Spirit is working so that we can be assured of the promised presence of Christ at the altar here on earth, connects us to the altar in heaven, that the very body and blood of Jesus that was crucified on the cross for our sins, that was raised from the dead for our righteousness, is now given to us here on earth to eat and to drink, that we have the very body of Jesus, the same body of Jesus, not a spiritual body, but the true body of Jesus that is given to us here to assure us of life. Uh, his flesh is a life-giving flesh. Uh, the, the blood of Jesus assures us that it was poured out for our uh, forgiveness. And so that's why later on in the book of Hebrews, when we have this understanding of gathering together, we gather before God, who is a judge of all, but we don't gather by ourselves before the judge. We gather with the advocate, the one who is going to be the mediator between us and the creator, the one who assures us that his blood speaks better than the blood of, of Abel. Abel's blood cries out for vengeance, but the blood of Christ cries out for mercy that assures us of his presence there. And so when we're gathered together with the whole company of heaven, 
Here on earth, you have these angels who are pointing us to Jesus. That's the messengers. And that's the same messengers that were, were ministering to the people of God throughout the Old Testament, the same messengers that uh, were ministering to Jesus, of course, uh, in the temptation when he goes into the wilderness led by the Holy Spirit, same uh, angels who are ministering to Jesus in Gethsemane, uh, when on that night in which he's betrayed, uh, he, he's praying to the Father, remove this cup. And so the Son is the one who knows, he knows intimately the suffering for sin uh, when he dies in our stead. So these angels are ministering spirits sent to serve us. It's not that we are to worship them, but they're sent to, to assure us and to be with us and help us in this whole message of salvation. The Reverend Dr. Brian Ketchelmeyer is teacher at Wittenberg Academy. He's been helping us today to study Hebrews chapter 1, verses 5 to 14. Dr. Ketchelmeyer, thanks for being our guest today. Oh, it's been great to be here. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about Hebrews chapter 1, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. It's always a pleasure to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow. <laughs>